Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I am joined by Judge Margaret McEwen, who sits on the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Your Honor, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thank you. Now, we are here to talk about your brand new book, Citizen Justice, The Environmental Legacy of William O. Douglas, Public Advocate and Conservation Champion. So I just wanted to ask you right off the top, it's not like your workload is low. What really drove you to write about uh, Justice William O. Douglas and this element of his legacy? What drove me to write about it was really an interest and a certain serendipity that turned into a passion, which I can explain, is I was out snowshoeing in Grand Teton National Park, and I came upon a homestead I wasn't familiar with. Uh, Snow was rising to the top of the cabins. I was thinking about where can I sit to have lunch when this figure emerges from one of the cabins, and I said, where am I? And he said, you are at the Murray Ranch. And I said, oh, yeah, I know, John Muir. And he said, no, no, Murray, M-U-R-I-E. So he invited me down, and I learned that the Murrays uh, were conservation champions of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and then later on as well. And as I explored some more, I learned that the chairman of the Murray Ranch was one of my former hiking partners from D.C. So that was intriguing. And then later I learned that Justice Douglas had written to this couple and said, you should put your homestead into an historic status with the National Park because you have such interesting and important background. So my question was, well, how did this rather humble couple from Wyoming, which is my home state, intersect with the very larger-than-life William O. Douglas. And I learned that they were really interrelated in the conservation movement. So I began to do some research at the Library of Congress and some other places, really on a lark, to be honest. But the more I learned, the more interested I got. And then I gave a couple small talks, and people said, you should write a book. And I said write a book. I'm too busy writing opinions. (laughs) But as it turned out, I was pretty well hooked on the story of Douglas and his conservation activities. And little by little, I researched at various archives across the country. And the result is now my book, which is being released September 1. Now, one of the things that I found interesting was that you and Justice Douglas share a background in many ways in that you started life out in the Pacific Northwest. You ended up, you know, coming to DC. And I just wondered, you know, did you feel a connection there? Did you understand how his childhood had really made outdoor activities a passion for him? I definitely felt an identification, but of course, he went on to the U.S. Supreme Court. And at that point, of course, our identification has to end. But I am a child of the West and moved back to the Pacific Northwest after law school. I am an avid hiker, snowshoer, and previously was a mountain climber. And so I identified with his connection with the environment and with nature and with wilderness. So I think that was part of it. And then 
there was also this rather iconoclastic event that took place after I graduated from law school and was a young lawyer. When Justice Douglas died, some lawyers in Seattle got together and asked uh, me and others to come, and they talked about we should purchase Douglas's cabin in the Cascade Mountains near Seattle and make it some kind of an historical tribute which we all thought was interesting because we, of course, knew Justice Douglas from his writings on the court and his activities while we were in law school. But, of course, there were two major problems. One, the cabin was not for sale. His widow, Kathy Douglas, had decided not yet to sell it. And two, of course, we had no money because we were <laughs> young lawyers. So that was the end of that. And that was like in the early 1980s. So I didn't, quote, meet Justice Douglas again, at least in, in terms of kind of a virtual meeting years later through his papers at the Library of Congress. And you mentioned his papers. He, you know, wrote his own autobiography. Uh, there have been many books um, about him. However, you really chose to narrow in on his efforts at conservation. Was that partially just not wanting to redo work that had already been done? Or, you know, is this something that you felt really had not been as thoroughly explored as it deserved to be? Well, you first mentioned his writings. He wrote more than 50 books, which is pretty astounding for somebody who's also sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court. But when I got into the project and explored more, it became apparent to me that what I was seeing is that he was almost running like a one-man lobby shop parallel to his work at the Supreme Court. And all of that lobbying was related to the environment. What I became quite interested in is, well, how did that mesh with his life on the court? How did his life on the trail mesh with the conservation movement? And then how did ethics play or overlay these themes. So you're right. I, I didn't feel like I wanted to recreate what had been done, which are several important biographies. But it seemed to me there was a particular story to tell about his environmental advocacy. And I, I really love that you chose the title to, instead of maybe reflecting just his environmental advocacy, uh, to also embody this push and pull of his identity as a judge and his citizen justice. And this, apparently, his, his idea of himself as the citizen justice who had the right to be an advocate for the causes he believed in may have, at least according to him, stemmed from uh, a tax case he was involved in. Could you tell that little anecdote? Sure. When he went on the court in 1939, he was just age 40. He was literally just over a decade out of law school, which is pretty remarkable. And on that first round when he was on the Supreme Court, there came a tax case. And the question in the tax case was, do federal judges have to pay income tax? Or are they somehow exempt because the Constitution provides that federal judges' salary can't be diminished while they're in office. So the Supreme Court kind of laid quick work to that theory and said, well, of course they have to pay 
income taxes. Federal judges are citizens like everybody else, and they're not exempt. And when that decision was made, although he didn't write the opinion, he apparently made a little note in his docket basically saying, I've just voted myself first-class citizenship, and I can do what other citizens can do so long as it doesn't interfere with the work of the court. So as time went on and I saw what he had done and synthesized how that fit with his time on the court, it just seemed to me that a perfect title was Citizen Justice because he conceived of himself as a regular citizen. Of course, he was a justice of the Supreme Court and put the two together, and that really embodied his life. Now, since I work for the ABA Journal, I am pretty well-versed in the ABA's role in coming up with judicial ethics and ethics for lawyers. But I think that there will be some of my listeners who don't quite understand the judicial code of ethics or what rules federal judges, state judges are bound by that Supreme Court justices are not. Uh, This may be a challenge, but could you give a brief overview for anyone who hasn't really had experience with this? For example, you as a Ninth Circuit judge, are there things that you can and cannot do? Well, the answer is yes. There are things I can and cannot do. But if I could provide a little context, and it actually relates to the ABA. And that was a long time ago, people can recall what was called the Black Sox scandal, which was a baseball betting scandal. So the question was, who should examine the baseball betting scandal? And someone said, how about a federal judge? That would be an honest broker to figure out what had gone on. So the question was, could a federal judge also be the baseball commissioner? And it was quickly determined that that wouldn't be appropriate. And the judge had to choose between baseball and being a federal judge. He chose being the baseball commissioner. And of course, it paid a lot more. But not not long after that, the ABA appointed a commission to really write the first federal judicial ethics code. And Justice Taft was appointed to head that commission. So fast forward, um, in the federal judiciary, the uh, federal judges are governed by what's called a code of conduct, which is really an ethics code. And it sets out what is permissible and what is not permissible. But an important concept is the appearance of impropriety. So federal judges have to determine whether sitting on a case would in any way evoke a reasonable person to think that it might be improper because of some conflict. So it's a fairly simple principle, and we see it in the code, and we also see it in federal statute. Now, I might add that during the history of development of the code and as time went on, some of this was occurring in the 40s and 50s while Justice Douglas was on the court. And he was somewhat resistant to some of the ethical requirements that might be imposed particularly if someone, for example, were to scrutinize his writing. He thought that would violate his free speech rights. He was not crazy about a requirement that Supreme Court justices report their stock ownership or 
the amount of money they were receiving, for example, from writing books or articles. So he filed those reports, but he did it under protest. And so that gives you a sense that he really felt that some of these principles impinged on his freedom as a citizen and as a justice. And I found that to be somewhat interesting because it came into play sometimes when he was actually deciding cases. And we can talk about that as well. Well, I'd love to do that. And we will be hearing more about some of Justice Douglas's uh, cases when we come back from hearing a word from our sponsor. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm here with Judge Margaret McEwen of the Ninth Circuit, and we are here discussing citizen justice, the environmental legacy of William O. Douglas, public advocate and conservation champion. Now, we were just discussing how his interests in environmental advocacy sometimes did overlap with cases he was being asked to hear. And this is certainly not the first time in which this happened, but this may be, uh, if people have heard about it, the most well-known of his opinions when it comes to environmental cases, and that is the Sierra Club versus Morton. Could you tell us a little bit about this case? Yes. Um, this case involves an area in California called Mineral King Valley, which is in the Sierras. And the Forest Service had granted a permit to Walt Disney to build a ski resort there, the Sierra Club was unhappy about that because the Sierra Club felt that it would totally diminish the environment and would destroy a very pristine area. So they brought a lawsuit. It went to the district court. It went to the Ninth Circuit. And then it ended up in the U.S. Supreme Court. And it was rather a narrow issue because the Sierra Club decided to take a novel approach. Usually, if you have a lawsuit, you have a person who says, I've been injured, I want to bring this lawsuit. So the Sierra Club said, well, really, the injury here was to the valley. So the valley should be able to sue. And they kind of rolled the dice on this new legal theory, which didn't find a lot of traction when you got to the U.S. Supreme Court, which said, you haven't said any of your members 
have been injured. You're talking about this inanimate object of a valley and rivers and trees. And speaking of members, wasn't Justice Douglas a lifelong member of the Sierra or lifetime member of the Sierra Club? Oh, and you are so correct. He had been a board member and then he became a lifetime member. And he also engaged in a number of protest hikes sponsored by the Sierra Club to advance their cause. So when the case came to the Supreme Court, there was a lot of scuttlebutt around the court, according to those I interviewed and the papers that I've reviewed. Would he need to recuse himself, disqualify himself from hearing the case because of this prior association with the Sierra Club? So really a couple of things happened. One, he then wrote to the Sierra Club after the case had come to the court and said, I'm not really thinking of any particular case, but should something come in front of the Supreme Court, I don't think I should be a lifetime member of the Sierra Club. I hereby resign. And of course, they said, we're very sorry about that, but of course, you can resign. And then when the case came and he was going to be in the dissent because he didn't agree that the case should be, in effect, kicked out of the court. A number of people around the court said, well, should he sit on this case, given his prior association with the Sierra Club, and not just historical, but the fact that he had had a lot of recent um, dealings with the Sierra Club? The answer was one that he knew about. I mean, the question was one he knew about and took to heart, but he decided that he could sit. And so he wrote a really impassioned dissent in this case, maybe one of the most iconic dissents um, in Supreme Court history. And in the dissent, he really waxed eloquent about nature, his connection to nature, the importance of trees, valleys, and rivers, and said, why shouldn't those inanimate objects be able to sue in court in their own name. And he likened it to the fact that a ship can file a lawsuit or that a corporation, which is not a person in technical terms, should be able to file a lawsuit. So he was very much a believer that the environment and nature should have their day in court. And the way he wrote that and the way that we began to think about who can come to court and ask for relief, I think had a really impact, not only at the time, but down the road. I believe the quote you pulled out was, should a tree have standing? Correct. Should a tree have standing? And of course, at the end of the day, the case went back to the lower court and they substituted an individual who said that he would be harmed because he hiked and had recreational activities in the area. And if they totally destroyed the valley, it would destroy his ability to enjoy nature. Ultimately, Disney dropped the whole project. Too many complications, too many reviews. So they dropped the project. So as I like to say, the trees are still standing (laughs) in Mineral King Valley. Now, you mentioned a phrase uh, a few minutes back, which was protest hikes. So I had had no prior knowledge that Justice Douglas had this form of protest. 
But uh, what struck me as a reader is one of the protest hikes he arranged was to protect the area around the C&O Canal, which I actually um, walked along last time I was in Maryland. So I have been to one of the places that uh, Justice Douglas very directly protected. Could you tell the story of the CNO Canal and how he came to this tactic of protest hikes and what he what he wanted to accomplish with these protest hikes? Sure. Well, at the time this came about, uh, which was in the early fifties, he'd been on the court just over a decade. He had missed the political brass ring of being named either a presidential candidate or vice presidential candidate to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I think he was a little bored. And the CNO Canal project really sparked everything that said who he was. So the Washington Post wrote an editorial that said, we should put a road into the CNO Canal so more people can enjoy it and pave part of this over. And Douglas read this, and he was prompted to then write back letter to the editor about how ridiculous this is. And if you came with me, meaning Justice Douglas, on a hike on the canal, then you would see why putting a road there was folly. So they actually agreed to join him. And there was a 189-mile hike. Um, the CNO Canal runs 189 miles up from Washington, D.C., and none of the editors finished the hike, but there were just nine people out of the total number, including this gentleman, Olas Muri, who we spoke about before, the conservationist and head of the Wilderness Society. So they ended the hike in Washington, D.C. There was a lot of press and publicity. And Douglas then did what really became a signature of his advocacy. He had a lot of publicity. There was a space that was threatened with development. He formed a committee. He became the chair of the committee. And then they began to lobby the various federal agencies with concerns about why putting a parkway there would really destroy a national treasure. And ultimately, years later, it was turned into a national historic park. So if you're in Washington, D.C., near Georgetown, you can go down to the canal and you'll see an incredible bust of Justice William O. Douglas giving tribute to saving the canal. And I kind of like what the Park Service said. They Well, two things. They said it was the only national park that was walked into existence. And they also said that it's the only national park that was named after a single individual, which I thought was pretty remarkable. It is. What's even more remarkable is, you know, at the end of these long slogging hiking days, and sometimes at the beginning, there would be these celebratory suppers beforehand, celebratory breakfasts. And they were, you know, so they would be expected to, you know, eat oysters and champagne and, you know, heavy, heavy, heavy food and then start off on their walk. Uh, so I guess I was not stunned that only nine people managed the uh, 180 odd miles. Right. Well, he, he was a very fast hiker, very tall individual, um, kind of rugged looking, particularly when you see him in his traditional hat that he always wore. But they stopped along the way and they were feted by Boy Scouts and various uh, 
clubs and the Audubon Society, but they also did stop and have uh, great celebrations, as you say, with uh, some liquor and some oysters and, and not your traditional hiking food, but they did sleep on the trail. And during that, there was rain, there was snow, every kind of climate um, condition that you could imagine. But when you see him in the photos, which some of which are in the book, you see him emerging quite a jubilant um, uh, Justice Douglas at the end of this quite difficult hike. And years later, over time, he hiked that canal almost every Sunday, sometimes with his law clerks, sometimes with uh, his friends. Uh, it was not something I would say his colleagues particularly joined in in terms of the hiking. But he did seem to bring up this form of recreation and this way of socializing uh, with people as a, as a way of getting to know someone out on the trail. You quote at the very end of the book from his resignation letter, and it's it's very dear. He talks about how, you know, when he starts off a canoe trip, you know, you may not know each other, but in your experiences along the way, you come to, and that is the way that he feels about his brethren uh, on the Supreme Court. I'm, I'm not doing the quote justice, but it was it was very moving that he brought this form of uh, recreation that meant so much to him into kind of all his dealings. Yes, I mean, he talked about the court as being strangers at the beginning, but fast friends now. And he also exhorted them, I hope that you will also work to preserve these many wilderness places. So in some ways he had a life on the court, but then he had this almost bifurcated life with nature, uh, with the conservation groups. He really was a, a prime mover, shaker, and leader in the conservation movement. And today we use the word environmental as a fairly common word in the Supreme Court, in the newspaper, in legal lingo. But it really wasn't until the early 70s that we saw that word used in the sense that we think about environmental now. Um, and it was used in the Supreme Court by Justice Douglas. In some ways, he was like a canary in the coal mine because he warned decades ago about pesticides. He warned about problems with destroying habitat like sagebrush. Um, and he warned of all kinds of pollution. He even created what he called a wilderness bill of rights. So he was a totally unique individual. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. And when we come back, I'm going to be speaking with Judge McEwen about the difference between preservationists and conservationists in the early environmental movement. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library, where I'm still speaking with Judge McEwen about her new book, Citizen Justice. And one of the things that I found really fascinating about the book is you gave me a much better idea of some of the fights between people we would now consider environmentalists on the theories of preservation versus conservation. Could you give people a little more idea about, you know, what was happening around the New Deal uh, time and this battle between preservationists and conservationists? And where do you think Justice Douglas came down? Well, I think it was um, a very significant time for him. Of course, he was a very good friend of uh, 
President uh, Roosevelt, who appointed him to the court. And he also was hobnobbing with the president, playing poker and other things. But he came really to an impasse with the president on a couple of things. This issue of preservationist versus conservationist really evolved over time, where the preservationists um, might be in short terms described as those who didn't want any development and who wanted to preserve the wilderness and other parts as they were. Conservationists were a little more flexible, one might say, in conserving, but also recognizing that there are some competing interests and that there can be sometimes multiple use of a protected area and also that there are areas which should be conserved. So by the time you get to Roosevelt, of course, we're coming out of the Depression. There's a big campaign to open the parks. And Douglas is somewhat opposed to that because he feels that once you start opening the national parks to cars and to all the people that you are going to change the nature of the park. But Roosevelt said, well, how else will the people get there if they can't drive their car? But more importantly, the area that he took really, I think, um, a point of direct disagreement with Roosevelt was on dams. Dams were being built. Uh, for hydroelectric power. He was very concerned about the environment, about what would happen to the uh, fish population. And so he totally opposed Roosevelt on dams. And Roosevelt, of course, was walking a fine line between really dealing with the war and an unprecedented economic crisis and poverty in the United States So he had brought about, I think, some fairly pragmatic views to the environment. On the other hand, there's really a wonderful book about Roosevelt written um, by David Brinkley in which he talks about what a great conservationist and environmentalist that Roosevelt was. I would say, however, that I'm not sure Douglas would completely agree. And on some of those issues, that's where he broke with Roosevelt. And, you know, I really can see both perspectives because, you know, you think of um, FDR, who was a wheelchair user. Uh, truly, he, he was not going to be able to hike 15 miles into the wilderness to see some of the amazing sites that Justice Douglas wanted preserved. And on the other hand, you know, how wild is a place once you bring a whole lot of people to it? Uh, so I, I see why there was that um, push and pull. I also noted that one of his foes was the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is the reason my grandfather uh, could eat during the Depression. So it definitely was a time that uh, had a lot of complicated needs for the nation. Did you, in your research, see him evolve at all over time? Or do, do you think that he really had that perspective and stuck to it? Well, he certainly evolved. And I think if he, the way he evolved is that to the extent he might have had more flexibility early on, I think he became much more of um, a stricter preservationist as time went on. His view was once these forests and wildernesses disappear, you can never get them back. And so he was really propelled to go out and do these protest hikes everywhere from Washington State to 
California, Colorado, Texas, and um, of course on the East Coast, Washington, D.C., up to Maine. So I think he became more and more convinced that the future of the planet, the future of the American population in terms of where it would end up down the road, that it was really important to do whatever you could to preserve and to save the environment. And that's basically what he did. That's what I found so fascinating. He was doing that at the same time he was sitting on the Supreme Court. So I came to the conclusion that he was a incredibly fascinating but somewhat flawed individual in you know certain dimensions, but also someone really to be admired for his principles and how he carried them out. Now, one of the areas that he took a great interest in, the two of you had a little bit of an overlap uh, as I was reading. We came to the part in the book where we discuss Alaska. And I would just love for you to tell the readers a little bit about how you were involved as a White House fellow and special assistant to Senator Cecil Andrus. Yes, you're correct. I, I worked with Secretary of Interior Cecil Andrus while I was a White House fellow, which is a nonpartisan position in the government. And at that time, Secretary Andrus asked me to work on then-pending legislation, the Alaska National Interest Land Conservation Act, which would really set the stage for what Alaska would become in terms of the environment, drilling, preservation, wilderness, subsistence rights, hunting, fishing, and um, logging as well. That legislation was passed after President Carter lost. And Secretary Andrews said to me beforehand, I, I believe that President Carter will lose, but I believe that we will come to a compromise with everyone and pass this legislation. So I had a front row seat to how that intersection of politics and policy and the law come together. But going back in time, Olas and Marty Murray, who met in Alaska, and she was the first female graduate of the University of Alaska, they went on their honeymoon on a dog sled. But it became one of their really overriding advocacy points to make sure that the Arctic was preserved. So they were going on a scientific expedition up to the Arctic. And a couple years before, they had met Justice Douglas on the CNO Canal. They were not particularly celebrity collectors or name droppers, but they realized if they had his imprimatur and name, that it might help them in their effort in Alaska. So they invited him to come along to the Arctic expedition, which he did. And while he was there, he said, basically, he wanted to be treated like everybody else. So every time somebody said, Justice Douglas, would you like a cup of hot chocolate? He would say, Bill, just call me Bill. But in the end, when they finished that scientific expedition, the Muries spread out over Alaska to really proselytize about the importance of the environment there. And Douglas went back to Washington and 
did some lobbying, pulling some strings about emphasizing how important it was to do something to make sure that Alaska was not lost. And he also wrote a chapter in one of his many, many books. So some have said, including from later researchers from the Park Service, that really that combination of the Murrays, but particularly Justice Douglas with his name, was critical in preserving Alaska in that early period of the 50s and 60s. And some people called him the goofy bird from the Supreme Court. <laughs> well, the attitude that I see such similarities uh, between the Martys and Douglas, that if I can just show you what I'm trying to protect, you're going to become my ally. And that seemed to be exactly why he started these protest hikes and um, exactly why the Martys made that their, their avenue of advocacy. Yeah, his view was, if I can show you something, then you'll understand it better. So he was forever, for example, taking out the Secretary of Agriculture and showing him various parts of Montana and Washington State. He would um, take out, as we saw, um, other people who were involved in the environmental movement. And he also, at the same time, was trying to lobby presidents, uh, both Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. One of the things he said about President Kennedy that made me smile is he said, the trouble with you, Jack, is you never slept on the ground. So I don't <laughs> think he ever got President Kennedy out on a camping trip, but he did with Bobby. In fact, they went to Russia together. And Douglas was an amazing international traveler, given the times. You know, he went to what was then called Persia. He was all over the Middle East. Um, he was in Russia. So he was not only a great traveler, he was a great collector of specimens, a great photographer, and of course, a great hiker. And he also climbed mountains. So he really knew the subject that he was writing about. You have, of course, emphasized his environmental advocacy. But, you know, when we're talking about the American West or wilderness, Often we're talking about areas that had been settled by indigenous people, by Native Americans for long periods of time uh, before many of them were removed from the land. And Justice Douglas didn't see himself only as a champion for the environment. He also saw himself as a civil rights champion. But you had an interesting uh, segment of the book where you talk about um, his views of Native American rights uh, when they came into conflict with environmental aims. Could you talk a little bit about his relationship with Native American rights and the environment? He grew up in an area uh, east of Seattle in the Cascade Mountains, Yakima. And there were, of course, the Yakima tribe and others. And he somewhat conflictingly often talked about, I knew them well. I learned from the Indians various skills in the wilderness. And then he would turn around and say, but I didn't really know them. Um, on the other hand, when it came to cases in the Supreme Court, by and large, his opinions tip in favor of Native Americans. However, when that collided with rights of fish, it wasn't then always so clear. And there were times when I would say in some of those decisions, um, he ruled against the tribes and in favor of the fish. But his inclination and 
his documents and papers really show uh, a great respect for the tribes. Well, Judge McEwen, I want to thank you so much for appearing on this episode of the Modern Law Library. If anyone is interested in picking up Citizen Justice, the Environmental Legacy of William O. Douglas, Public Advocate and Conservation Champion, where can they do so? Well, of course, they can do it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, They can also do it from the publisher, Potomac Books, and many bookstores are carrying it as well. And do you have any future plans for books? This was quite an undertaking, I might say, but it was really uh, one that I was so happy that I serendipitously got involved in. But I am thinking about books in the future, and I haven't settled on anything, but I have to say the writing process and the research process were so interesting and fulfilling to me that I'm not someone who would say, oh, never again, I'm done. I would say that was both um, personally gratifying, but also the ability to interview many of those who were players, whether, of course, his uh, last wife, uh, Kathy Douglas, um, very helpful, his law clerks, various law professors, uh, various members of environmental movement, various people from the government. So I found that to be a very interesting process. I like people, I like documents, but I really enjoyed the combination of the two. Well, I hope we get to see another one, even if you don't reach the uh, Douglas limit of uh, 50 books or so. No chance. (laughs) Well, thank you to Judge McEwen, and thank you to you, my listeners, for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you have a book that you would like me to check out on a future episode, you can always reach me at books at abajournal.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast listening service.